Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today we check in with Fidelity Director of Global Macro Urian Timmer as he discusses the latest developments from the Federal Reserve's latest policy meeting, how alternatives may fit in your portfolio, and if we are in fact in a bear market bounce. The Federal Reserve left rates unchanged at the end of its policy meeting last week. The Fed also acknowledged that there are various lag effects and that inflation is coming down, signaling a pause and the need to become more data-dependent. Urian says the narrative has moved on from this to the term premiums in the bond markets and how far the bond yields must go and what is the interplay between monetary and fiscal policy. He adds rising rates and rising term premium has brought down the P.E. for the stock market and so as rates start coming down, this has created a big sigh of relief in the equity markets. The term premium has dramatically flipped since 2020. It was at minus 1.45% three years ago and has reached as low as minus 9%. A few months ago, it was as high as 0.5%. Urian also comments on the Magnificent Seven, alternatives in your portfolio, and the transition from the Great Moderation Regime. As per usual, Urian will be sharing his charts, so please head to at Timmer Fidelity on Twitter to follow along. This podcast was recorded on November 6, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. I mean, some of the big macro events have happened, but actually there's a few still to come. Do you want to just just touch quickly on the events side of things, the data piece? Um, So last week we had, of course, the FOMC and... It's interesting that, you know, after all of the hand-wringing over the past year and a half of, you know, what's the Fed going to say? How much further are they going to go? That the Fed really is sort of on the back burner now. Um, I think the consensus, um, correctly so, is that the Fed, you know, is probably done, uh, if not completely done, at least uh, mostly done. Uh, We can actually pull up slide 18. And that slide Urian is referring to is inflation and the Fed tweeted on November 7th. Um, And so the the story has sort of migrated from uh, Fed policy, how much more uh, to, you know, at what point can the Fed give back some of the rate hikes and will it do so voluntarily because uh, inflation has been tamed or will it do so out of necessity because, you know, that long-awaited recession is finally here at some point next year. Uh, We don't, of course, know the answer to that. But when you look at the curve here, the dotted black line, uh, the market is expecting the Fed to reverse at some point in the next, you know, year or two. Uh, Of course, that's that's a moving target. This is just a snapshot in time. But this came after the FOMC last week. And uh, that was followed quickly by the jobs report, which came in soft. And so that was kind of a double whammy that 
I think helped the market, it helped the bond market and that helped the stock market. But before we go there, just to show you, you know, we can argue about what what is the natural rate of interest or R star. We can we can talk about you know whether the tips market is correct or not in in its relatively complacent uh, expectation on inflation. But if we just look at at the actual inflation rate, so this is the core PCE rate in the purple, uh, it has come down from 5.57 to 3.68. I mean, obviously 3.68 is well above 2%, which is the Fed's target. But when you look at where the Fed is, which is at five and a quarter to five and a half, that is well north of 3.68. So I think no matter how you slice it, the Fed is restrictive. The Fed has done a lot, right? I mean, it has raised rates from zero to five and a quarter uh, in a year and a half. And so the Fed should be pausing here. It should be saying, okay, you know, these there are various lag effects and we've done a lot. Inflation is coming down. Um, and so why don't we just kind of pause and become more data dependent? Um, and so the Fed is saying all of those things and that's exactly what it should be saying. And so the so the, the narrative has moved on from this to, you know, the term premium in the bond market and how far do bond yields have to go? What is the interplay between the monetary and the fiscal? Um, it's hard to solve this puzzle, right? I mean, this is the change in the government's debt since COVID and the change in the Fed's uh, portfolio, a system open market account, which is the part of the Fed's balance sheet where QE and QT happen. Um, and that is a very big gap that is widening. And so this is a, a story not for necessarily today, but certainly for the long term, is that as the Fed withdraws from the market, while the gut, while the fiscal side of things uh, keep, you know, um, getting more, uh, you know, more pronounced, let's put it that way, um, you do wonder how, you know, how this is eventually going to resolve itself. But but that's that's a more of a structural question. It's a structural question, but can can we just ask? I mean, is there any? Yeah appetite for anything other than spending? I mean, the reverse of that, of course, is some version of austerity, which probably isn't, or, you know, bankruptcy, I think you said, is not going to happen. So, yeah. so what, yeah, actually, what is, where do those jaws go? Yeah, it's, uh, it, let's pull up slide 15. Um. The next slide is U.S. Government Debt Service tweeted on November 9th. You know, I mean, this is a vicious cycle, unfortunately, uh, and I don't really see how it's going to resolve itself. Right? I mean, obviously, large a large debt burden is not unique to the U.S. I mean, Canada has one, England has one, Europe, uh, Japan, China. So th this is a global problem. Uh, and and the instance, U.S. When there was the debt crisis in Europe years ago, I mean, there, there were countries that were literally pushed into austerity yes. and they did have to do it and they had no choice that that's there's no sentiment sort of or appetite for that here no it? no so if we go back to like you said the eurozone debt crisis in 2010 2011 of course greece was sort of the the poster child for that one but other countries were caught up in it as well but you know countries like greece and maybe italy portugal spain uh they had to they had to decide between austerity or essentially leaving the euro. So that, that, you know, I mean, that basically is what it came down to because, you know, the, the rest of the EU, uh, driven by the northern countries, were forcing austerity on their, it, their southern neighbors. Um, and then, you know, you had political uprisings. Remember the whole story with, in Greece and you had the populists. And so 
so in order to not agree to austerity pushed on it by the North, they would have to basically leave the euro, you know, quit quit the system. And that's a very stark choice. And of course, the U.S. doesn't have to make that choice. Uh, but generally, when you have too much debt, you know, you either try to live with it or you you default on it, which, of course, is not going to be an option either. Uh, austerity, you know, normally is the, the, the best way out, but it's painful and it's politically not very popular. And so, you know, here we are, if you look at this chart, you know, the, the U.S. economy is about 27 trillion. The debt is 33 trillion. The, the government's budget is about six and a half trillion. Uh, and about a trillion of that six and a half trillion is just debt service. And of course, that's rising rapidly. And I don't see how this is going to reverse, right? I mean, uh, when you look at the at the parts of the budget that are truly discretionary, it's a pretty small part. So, you know, obviously we have entitlement spending, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, you have defense spending. You have debt service. Uh, once you take all of that out, there's not really a lot to, to still haggle over, right? So we're unfortunately going into another election cycle, which is like the last thing I'm ready for mentally. But, uh, but you know, whatever they haggle about is not really going to move the needle and the and the easy the easy way out at least over the near term seems to be whatever the debt service is costing you just add that to the deficit and the deficit gets bigger but that is a vicious cycle it's not sustainable and it gives it brings you to a scenario where uh going back to that earlier chart where the fed may very well be forced back into the bond market even though it may actually be doing quantitative tightening at the same time. And, uh, and, and, you know, we can kind of borrow a page from the Bank of England uh, a year ago where right. it was doing QT, it was raising rates, uh, and at the same time, you know, the gilt market, the government bond market in, in the UK, uh, you know, had a, had a, an air, hit an air pocket, uh, you know, clean up on aisle four, as we say here in the US. <laughs> and the, the Bank of England had to, had to mop that up. They had to go in and buy bonds while they were also selling bonds. And that I think is probably where the Fed's gonna find itself. Like maybe at some point there will be a failed auction and, and the Fed will have to step in and it will jump through hoops to not call it quantitative easing. Uh, and maybe it can, it can, maybe it can thread that needle, but it's, it's, you know, it's hard to run a vicious cycle of deficit spending without the central bank somehow being involved with that, whether they like it or not. And I think, unfortunately, that's kind of the, the, the direction we're going in in the U.S. Yeah, fascinating. So when we saw what we saw last week, which was um, a, a departure from just the Magnificent Seven, uh, essentially rallying through the year, uh, what was that? Was that a good, was that a good signal? Was that, we got lots of people asking whether it was, you know, a bear market, bear market bounce. What do you think it was? Yeah. So last week was really interesting. So the the dovish Fed, the soft payroll report, uh, combined with the ten-year Treasury yield hitting five percent and finding buyers there, uh, in addition to Treasury Department Secretary uh, Yellen uh, making a pretty smart choice to switch the funding maturity of new new treasuries from long-dated paper to short-dated paper, 
So the Treasury, and, and not everyone appreciates this, but the Treasury is very active right now in managing uh, its maturity spectrum uh, based on where rates are going, as it should be. Um, and so that was another uh, thing that, that relieved, relieved the pressure on rates because of this ongoing barrage of supply. So, so Janet Yellen kind of made a smart move, a tactical move last week. So combined with all the other things that were happening, uh, bonds caught a huge bid, right? We went from 5% on the 10-year uh, to about four and a half, um, and we're at 463 right now. But that, but you know, this has all been about rates, right? So, so rising rates, the rising term premium has has brought down the PE for the stock market, and so as as rates kind of you know started to uh, to come down, that that created a big sigh of relief in the equity market. And you can see here, this is the S&P 500 cap weighted index. Uh, we fell 10% from the from the the um, the summer's high to the low last week, and we've had a massive bounce uh, since then. Uh, you see a similar very very sharp bounce, uh, and that bounce came after a pretty deep retest of the entire range lows. That shows the Russell 2000 the small cap index, and that also did a full deep retest. And so off of that low, we've had, so, so the S&P cap weighted, of course, which is driven by the Magnificent Seven, did kind of a garden variety correction, a retracement, and then a reversal. And then the rest of the market did this full retest of the bear market lows and then had a very robust recovery. And, you know, putting my, my technical hat on, we talk in the market about uh, breath thrusts, uh, which tend to happen off of a reversal. And so when you have a reversal like we did last week, and there's very broad participation in the market, meaning small caps and large caps and mid caps, everything goes up, um, and you have um, numbers like more than 90% of stocks were up on the day. So those tend to be what we call breath thrust. And when they happen off of reversals, they tend to have some legs. Um, and so the, my sense is that at least tactically, uh, this market actually is looking a lot better. And seasonally, uh, I don't have the chart here, but seasonally, you know, the, the weak part of the year is August, September, first half of October. And the strongest part of the year is from the middle of October all the way to April. Uh, and, you know, and the Santa Claus rally kind of like fits in there, year-end rally. So I think people are going to start now thinking about, okay, seasonally, this this looks okay. Maybe we get a Santa Claus rally. We have this breath thrust. And at the same time, if we go to slide eight, we saw just as the market went down, uh, a, a pivot in sentiment. So if you look at the sentiment surveys, and this chart shows the uh, American Association of Individual Investors. So that's slide eight. Next up is investor sentiment, tweeted by Urian on November 6th. Bearish, the, the, the bearish reading went from, like, I think it was uh, 21% to 50%, where the bullish reading went from 51 to uh, 24. And so just as that sentiment shifted to a pretty defensive posture, you get this reversal and breath thrust on the back of, you know, some, some relief on the rate side. So who knows how long it will last, but, but it's a pretty good backdrop for probably a year-end rally, I think. Okay, loads of questions coming in. More, more to say on, on some of your notes, but I just want to get a couple of these in. So, 
So ultimately, okay, this is this is going to government bonds. If it doesn't reverse, isn't owning government bonds versus say corporate bonds a worse option? So going back to the bond market discussion we began. Yeah, it, it, it's a it's a great question. Um, and that deals directly with the term premium, right? So if we take, um, uh, and let me see if I have a chart here. If we go to slide 19. And that slide he's referring to is U.S. bond valuation tweeted on November 7th. Uh, if we take the bond yields, which currently is at 464, uh, you can you can decompose that, uh, for, not for the lack of a better word, uh, into two parts. One is what's called the risk neutral rate, uh, which is that part of the yield that is sort of explainable uh, by the business cycle, by Fed policy, by cyclical inflation expectations. So that's the part that can be explained by where we are in the cycle. And then the, then the residual of that and the actual yield is the term premium. And the term premium, which is in the orange bars in the bottom there, is, is, is like, you know, it's basically a risk premium. So it, it, it only exists in the longer maturities because it's the compensation that investors uh, demand uh, for committing money for the long term. And so in corporate bonds, that would be a credit spread. In government bonds, it's the, called the term premium, and it's obviously uh, accounts for inflation risk, interest rate risk, obviously the, the, the fiscal side, which is what the question um, uh, explores, uh, plays into that. And so the term premium has flipped pretty dramatically. It was you know minus 1.45% in 2020. Uh, it was even minus 0.9% uh, a few months ago. It's now, at least at, at the recent high, it was about half a percent. We can talk about whether a half percent is high enough or whether it should be higher and based cer certainly on what we talked about earlier with that vicious cycle, you know, one could argue that it should be higher than, than 0.48%. Uh, but even then, the math really starts to work in your favor at these higher yield levels, because the higher the yield goes, the lower the duration goes, and obviously the higher the yield goes. And when you then think about risk reward of owning bonds, um, you know, it starts to become much more favorable. So if we take the, the Bloomberg Barclays Ag Index, which is the U.S. investment grade bond index, has a yield of five and a half-ish percent, has a duration of six. And so if yields were to fall 100 basis points, you would get five and a half plus six, which is 11.5 percent return over a one-year period if, if yields were to fall 100 basis points. If they were to rise 100 basis points from here, you would get 5.5%, of course, that will be the, the yield, minus the six uh, in duration, and so you would lose 0.5%. So plus 11.5 to minus 0.5 it are really good risk-reward numbers, and they would only get better uh, if yields continue to rise, which you know they, they may very well do in the coming years, although my guess is that cyclically, uh, they've probably risen enough you know, for now. And so that helps you on the government side. Of course, it helps you on the corporate side there as well. But then you have uh, a, a, another dimension of risk premia to deal with, right? Because you have the term premium, but then you also have the credit spread side. And credit spreads are pretty narrow, you know, for good reasons. I mean, debt has been termed out. The economy it seems to be fine. But but that would be at play uh, if we did get a recession, and then yields would fall, 
which is where that return kicks in that we just described, but you would give back some of it through widening spread. So I, I think there's probably a place for both in a portfolio. Where do alts fit in a portfolio in all of these discussions of what the bond market is providing right now, which actually is sort of a, a correlation to what's going on to the equity yeah, market in a lot of ways. I think alts fit very well. If we go to slide three. And the next slide is correlation matrix tweeted on November 8th. If we are entering a new regime, a new structural regime, and we are transitioning out of uh, the what we call the great moderation regime of falling interest rates, low inflation, uh, negative term premium, um, and high multiples in the stock market, right? If that that's been the the regime we've been in for the last you know two decades. Uh, if we are transitioning out of that into one of fiscal dominance, uh, where you get that vicious cycle of ongoing deficit spending, um, then uh, then the correlation of stocks and bonds may very well continue to uh, be positive, right? It flipped last year. Uh, it's been negative for decades, but it's it's now positive. And in that kind of regime where inflation would be above the Fed's comfort zone, um, um, then the correlation would be positive. So if we look here at this grid, and, and it's, you know, there's a lot of a lot of numbers there. I don't expect you to, have to, yeah, okay. to, to read all of them, but it, just look at the red and the blue. So this is the last 12 months correlations of every asset class that I track against every other asset class that I track. And so the blue bars, um, are, you know, T-bills, uh, the U.S. dollar. Uh, so when, when you get into a risk-off mode, the dollar tends to go up. And that, of course, is important to know, especially for Canadian investors, because the dollar, you know, the currency is always at play. Um, and then you have these alternatives, right? You have, uh, you know, the hedge funds market neutral, you have CTAs, you know, managed futures, you have equity hedge, so the, so the long short, you have absolute return, and those are all blue. Well, equity hedge is not because there tends to be a beta component on top of the alpha component. But look at what's red now. It's long-term government bonds are red, um, and though that used to be blue. So the places where you could hide in the past are changing. Um, from bonds to now alts, and, and so alts don't have as negative a correlation as bonds used to have, but they are either negative or they're not positive. So they're either non-correlated or they're negatively correlated. And it's interesting when you look at Bitcoin, uh, its correlation is falling uh, pretty quickly. It's still positive, it's 0.26% uh, positive, but it it was like 0.7% you know, uh, a, a year ago. So. Uh, so Bitcoin's correlation is falling as is, and gold, of course, has a, is non-correlated to equities as well. So there's a pretty good basket of alternatives here to pick from, not just the long, short and managed futures, but also gold and Bitcoin. Fantastic. I, so, okay, let's go through some of these other questions. So, so going back to the debt discussion and the global debt discussion, um, does the high debt servicing in the U.S. mean the Fed will not raise rates despite sticky inflation? Um, so that, I mean, that, that's a great question. And I think it puts the Fed in a, in a real bind, right? I mean, the Fed, 
is already going to be in a bind if and when a recession happens, and certainly it hasn't happened yet, and maybe it never will. But, you know, the, the Fed has a dual mandate, full employment and price stability at, you know, two, two and a half percent, depending on which inflation measure you use. And it has not had to worry about the inflation side of that equation uh, for 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 years, right, since the financial crisis. Inflation has underperformed the Fed's mandate. So the Fed could just exclusively worry about unemployment during periods of, of you know, of crisis, you know, financial crisis, COVID. Um, and um, and those days, I think, are over, right? So the next recession, obviously, the Fed will be worried about unemployment, but it will be equally worried about inflation, unless inflation at that point is well below 2%. But certainly, that's not the case right now. So the Fed is already moving into a regime in all likelihood where it has to really weigh those two mandates in a much more even way than it's than it's had to do. And at the same time, you know, we're in this period now of fiscal dominance, which I don't see ending anytime soon. And that pushes the Fed into a more restrictive policy than it otherwise would do because you know, that fiscal dominance is is stimulative, right? I mean, deficits are stimulative by, by definition. That's why countries do deficit spendings during recession. I mean, there's a reason for that. Uh, but the fact that we're running six, seven percent deficits at a time when the economy is pretty much at full employment, like that should not be happening, right? And and But it is happening. So it's hard to not see that as inflationary. So that pushes the Fed into a more restrictive zone than maybe it otherwise would. And and I don't know that the Fed is specifically targeting the fiscal side, saying, oh, you guys, you know, yelling, you got you to gotta stop doing this or we're going to have to raise rates. I don't know if they're that deliberate about it, but it puts them in a bind because it means they have to be more restrictive. And, and again, as we were talking about before, imagine a more restrictive Fed that at the same time has to uh, deal with uh, an unruly bond market where let's say an auction fails and and you know who's going to buy the auction the fed would presumably have to buy it and they would have to put it in a bucket somewhere so that it can say look we're not doing qe like this is not qe no, uh, but the, but no. but the market may not make that distinction and and you know you look at the price of gold right gold set $2000 an ounce uh, at an all-time high or near the all-time highs at a time when real rates, you know, are very hostile to the gold narrative, right? Real rates have gone from minus two to plus two, which usually would be very bearish for gold. And gold is sitting here at the highs. And I think that's what gold is sort of sensing is that we're going to be in this era of fiscal dominance. It's going to produce inflation. It's going to force the Fed back to the bond table, even if it doesn't want to be there. And that's going to be good for stores of value. Um, tell us a little bit about, well, and, and what you just described almost isn't the normalization story, but within a version of normalization is is the return of this sort of boom-bust um, cycle. Is, isn't that healthier in a way than having the Fed come in as the white knight all the time? But just speak to that dynamic yeah. of a boom-bust yeah. cycle coming back. So, yeah, so if we're going from the great moderation, which was a very long period of very low volatility, low inflation, uh, you would have you would have recessions and bear markets, but they would be extremely short, shallow, and the recovery would be very quick. Um, but it was kind of steady as she goes. 
you know, but that that is the exception to the rule, right? To the last 20 years. I mean, the history of the markets, which go, you know, back centuries, um, does not look like that at all. And so I did a little visual exercise. If we go to slide 21. Next up is real S&P 500 during expansion, tweeted on November 9th. Uh, I measure all economic expansions in the U.S. as defined by the NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research. Uh, so this is not from the start of a bull market to the end of a bull market, but from the start of an expansion to the end of an expansion. But I'm measuring the inflation-adjusted S&P 500 here. This goes all the way back to 1871. And of course, this is just a mess of gray lines, and it shows you that no cycle is 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 the same. But then what I did is I isolated cycles that kind of look like what we're doing today. Um, and that just kind of highlights cycles that kind of look like what we've been doing. And if you notice the labels on those cycles, uh, they're like from a really long time ago, like the 1950s and 60s, the 1920s, the 1800s are even in there. And those are all boom bust cycles. And so, you know, the, the COVID, the, the pandemic kind of has created a boom bust cycle because the amount of stimulus was just so powerful um, that, and now of course the Fed is trying to like clean that up, but the fiscal side is still going like, you know, in a very powerful way. And that creates these boom bust cycles because it means the Fed has to really slam on the brakes, uh, which is what it, which is what it has been doing. And so it creates shorter cycles and bigger swings. And of course, if you're more tactically inclined, if you're more trading oriented, I mean, that's great because it gives you much more swings at the bat in terms of playing the cycle. Um, and even for a long-term investor, like these things ultimately even out and, and the market still does what it's going to do. But you have to be mindful that you don't get whipsawed by these big swings and, and end up panicking and selling at the lows right before the market bottom. So it, it's, you know, it's a, it's not necessarily a terrible dynamic, but it's a different one. And it's one that many investors have never really seen before because the dominant pattern of the last several decades has been this, you know, great moderation. Um, I'll see if we can just fit this one question. We only got about a minute left, but just to introduce energy oil into the mix, it's been a, it's been a weird asset class to take a look at lately. Um, how would you sort of place it in the overall story of the markets right now? Yeah, so th so there there is a little bit of a demand story right now. Um, you know, the payrolls did soften, and even before that, there are some signs of softening. Uh, not a lot of signs in the U.S., but certainly you know around the world. I mean, uh, China has been pretty weak. The eurozone, you know, some people think the eurozone actually is in recession. I don't know, but uh, but so the demand story has weakened. You know, WTI right now is at $82. Brent's always a few dollars above that. Um, but the supply side remains very constructive, I think. Um, uh, you know, shale appears to, appears to have peaked in the U.S. And uh, non-OPEC non um, oil production, uh, there really hasn't been any investment in new sources of, of oil. So then you're stuck with OPEC um, and all of that, all of which that entails. So it remains a supply constrained market. Um, and uh, I continue to be very constructive uh, on the energy as, as a sector uh, in the market.
hearing Tim, we're so grateful to you and, and thank you very much and have a great start to your week as well. Great. Thank you, Pamela. Have a good week, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity Mutual Funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash howtobuy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.